0: it's, and I just realized that it looks like I've got a cleric collar on. My goodness, I didn't mean that. Hi, I'm, I'm Father Bradshaw. Oh, cool story. I, I, I once, (laughs) my fraternity had, uh, we had this rush event called Godfather, and they didn't know what character to make me in the Godfather, so um, they, they made me, uh, they said, Joel, you, you know, you're a token Christian in the house. So you can be Father Bradshaw and you can, you can be like the, the godfather priest or something and, and walk around and bless everybody or that kind of stuff. So I, 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 I'm not Catholic and I have never been Catholic or anything like that. So I didn't have the, the paraphernalia for that. But I, I had this black turtleneck and I put a white shirt underneath it and it, it peeked up the top and it literally looked like it. And the next day I went to Burger King and I walked in there and I ordered a meal and, and and the guy behind the counter, some, you know, young guy, he wouldn't take my money. And I ordered just ordered a value meal or something. And just, a, a Whopper combo or something. He's like, no, your money's no good here, father. I'm like, excuse me? And, and he's like, no, 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 you're a humble guy. I get it. You know, you, you must be the new parish priest in town. And yeah, no, 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 I, you, you're not going to pay for your value meal, father. And I'm like trying to argue with the guy, like I'm not even, and I I didn't even get out of my mouth. He's like, no, no, no. He just walks away and I got a free meal for being Catholic that day when I wasn't even Catholic, but I'm getting, I'm getting memories of father Bradshaw with my little color thing here unintended. And I didn't ask for it. And I I tried, you know, like throw some money on the counter and just run away or something. I don't know. But yeah. So Nahum three, let's open it a word of prayer and let's launch God, we thank you for Nahum chapter three. And that's a prayer. I've literally never prayed before. And I've just sat at my computer last night wondering what to do and how to, how to how to go with this. And and God, I thank you for your faithfulness. I pray tonight challenges us and encourages us and that we can find hope in a very hopeless situation. And I pray this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Okay. So we're in Nahum 3. You can see the screen there. Um, just want to make sure. Everything is, I just lost my chat screen here. One second, let me make sure it's all here. Gotta get rid of this, gotta get rid of this. Far too much on my screen right now. Okay, so I need to make sure we get the chat thing back. I need that, that's very important, so we have that. Okay, okay, so that is back. We have the chat. Without that, we have no way to communicate with me. And again, that's our Zoom rule. Everybody is muted, but uh, it is, Please interact with me via chat. If you have any questions or comments, send them. And in the flow of the lesson, we will uh, we'll try to get there. As always, we, we met our, our friend Mick, and Mick is our co-teacher here, and Mick is our running commentary as well. So Mick will be keeping comments going uh, throughout this. Okay, so we are in Nahun Chapter 3, and this is... I was joking with someone on staff late last, I've I, I work, been working some weird hours. So I'm working very late last night, you know, it was maybe, you know, nine o'clock or something like that, getting close to 10 o'clock in my office and sitting there with this, I'm like, how in the world am I gonna teach this? And it's just Nahum three is very, uh, well, you guys got my email today, some of you did. And uh, it's just, it's a very hard lesson. It's just God bringing judgment and god bringing condemnation and god just boom and just Nineveh just gets it and so it is uh yeah it's it's very um there's not there's not a lot there to really go on you're just like what am i going to do with this how am i going to teach us in a way because it just keeps going and going and going and we're going to see that in the text in fact let's just get into the text we don't need to hear about my commentary about this text But something clicked with me last night, and here's what clicked. This sounds like a lot of bad news. And when does bad news, when is that a good thing? We have churches give law and gospel. Why do they give law? They give law so you're convicted of your sin. You realize, oh, I did this, so I am a sinner. And that's the very basics of the gospel, the bad news. I'm a sinner. Nahum 3 is nothing but bad news. So that's a good thing. It fits very nicely in. We have to understand the bad news before we can understand the good news. So that clicked for me late last night. I hope it works out well. Let's dig in here. Uh, Nahum 3, verses 1 to 4. Woe to the city of blood, full of lies, full of plunder, never without victims, the crack of whips, the clatter of wheels, galloping horses and jolting chariots, charging cavalry, flashing swords and glittering spears, many casualties, piles of dead, bodies without number, people stumbling over the corpses, all because of the wanton lust of a prostitute, alluring the mistress of sorceries who enslaved nations by her prostitution and peoples by her witchcraft. It's like you done reading that last night. I'm going, oh my goodness, I, I have some wonderful, wonderful people in, in, my, in, this, in this great group we have. And I don't anticipate reading this and just going yay, I just read the word prostitute. And you look in the next section, it just gets even worse. Like, wow, this is like the least politically correct chapter in the Bible. It's really, really, really hard. And it's hard for modern ears to hear this. In fact, if you want to read ahead, look at verse 5. I'm not looking forward to verse five. I wasn't last time, but what am I going to do with this? And this is who they were. And I put a text here, 2 Kings 9.22. We have the same word here in, in the Hebrew. How can there be peace, Jehu replied? And this is at the top of the page here. You can see on the screen share. How can there be peace, Jehu replied? As long as the, the harlotries or idolatries and witchcraft of your mother Jezebel abound. So evidently, there was something about Nineveh. They were blood, lies, plunder, and victims. They were all about warfare and killing people and hurting people. And and the city of blood was going to have some blood. It was going to be their own blood. And we have here in verse 2 and verse 3 kind of the sounds of their defeat. Like it's it's the chariots and the swords. It's like they're losing. The, the God is finally sending the the, the army. And here they are, and they're being destroyed. And in verse four, the alluring prostitutes, sorceries, enslaving witchcraft. What in the world's going on there? Well, you got to understand, especially in the ancient world, um, we will see this in the Greek. This idea of witchcraft and or it's kind of it's it's allure. The Greek word is pharmakia, and so we we get the word pharmacy for that. And so it's pharmacy, if you really think about drugs, drugs are control. As you take a substance into you, especially like medicinal drugs, you take a substance into you, and it controls whatever you got going on, your symptoms, your disease, whatever it is, it's a control thing. And so evidently in the ancient world, people use magic and sorceries, that kind of stuff, in order to control people. And so you can think about it in a cheesy sense, like love potion number nine kind of thing. You drink the potion, and you're going to fall in love with the first person you see. That's a control thing. It's all control. So evidently, Nineveh had this reputation of a control, and they would bring people in, and they would bring in, they would enslave people. They would have this control element to them, and they had some kind of a magical element, a controlling nature about them that they just had this really bad reputation with regards to this, so much so that God's seeing it and pointing it out. And I don't know exactly what it was. I don't know exactly what it was they were going through. You, You can look back into history and find out maybe some examples of what's going on here. But evidently, it left a really bad taste in God's mouth because it's the first thing God does. He compares them to a prostitute, and a prostitute promises something but never does deliver. So you would not go to, I've never been to a prostitute, but you would not go to a prostitute and look for love. The best you're going to get is lust. It's like a con- transaction. You're not going to give uh, the three S's of love, selfless, sacrificial, or service. You're not going to get that. It is just, it's just not there. You're, you're just going to get a lure and you're going to get nothing in your mouth. You're just going to take a drink and it's just nothing inside there. It's just, it's empty. It's nothing. And that's what Nineveh was. There was just nothing to us. They they were causing all these people around them to either be defeated or bringing them in and enslaving them and causing them to embrace this very nothing. And so, yeah, but what do we do with that? Well, what we can learn right away is that God sees and cares about how you live your life. He saw and he actually cared about how Nineveh lived their life. He cared enough to punish them. And, that's like a parenting thing. I, I I care, so I'm going to bring this up. I don't want you to go down this path, so I'm going to punish you. And we have a a great image from Genesis 16. I put put the the, the notation of the text, and this is um. Yeah, this is from uh, from Rahab. Or excuse me, Hagar. Pardon me, Hagar. Uh, so the she just got kicked out, put out of this out of the scenes. And she says, she gave this name to the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees me. For she said, I have now seen the one who sees me. I like that. Yeah, makes saying the city of blood, their accusation, very murderous city, lies and plunder. They preyed upon their victims. Yeah. Yeah, very much rejoicing. Yeah, the bad, the bad nations often compared to the horror of Babylon, like in Revelation, they can't say they weren't warned. Yeah, and you got to say this, is that, you know, God also calls, I mean, that's the whole purpose of the book of Hosea, is that Israel, God's people, his bride, are whoring themselves to every other idol and deity, and so he tells Hosea, marry this prostitute and redeem her, and his entire marriage is like an object lesson of God's marriage with Israel, and so it's like God's not just calling Nineveh a prostitute. It's like there's that very idea of if you you commit yourself to God, but you give yourself to another, what are you doing? It's like you are prostituting yourself, your allegiance, your emotions, your commitment. Yeah. God sees and cares about how you live your life, which is very comforting. It was comforting in Hagar's side. It is also very terrifying, and we'll get to that. God condemns unrepented evil, Romans 2. 5 and 6 says this, but because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they have done. So God sees and cares about how you live your life. God condemns unrepentant. So how do we possibly apply the first four verses of Nahum 3? God sees people when they're evil, and God condemns evil when it's not repentant. Why do I bring that up? Because 150 years earlier, God saw they were evil and they repented, and God did not destroy. That's in Jonah's day. In fact, we were joking. Nahum chapter three was a, a chapter that Jonah was swimming in. He would love this chapter three. This is what he's going on. He's like, I don't want you to. I don't want you to, to forgive them, God. I don't want you to deal with them. I knew you were the kind of God who forgives. I want. I want this. I want judgment. They deserve judgment. They don't deserve forgiveness. You don't deserve that. Are you kidding me? See, God sees and cares about how you live your life. God condemns unrepented evil, and how you treat others matters to God. First Thessalonians 3 says this: "May the Lord make your love increase and overflow for each other and get this. He's writing to a church, so we, of course, be good to each other, but then he adds this, and for everyone else. It's like, you should be showing love to everybody. Oh well, He is my enemy, okay? Jesus says, Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you. And uh, yeah, in fact, Mick texted in, arguably David did worse sins than Saul from our perspective, but David actually repented, and Saul never did. Great point. Unrepentant evil is a problem. So here's the deal. And I texted this to you, I put this in an email today. Romans 5:10 talks about we're enemies. Those of us who aren't reconciled to God, we're enemies of God. So this whole chapter of God dealing with his enemies and and, and condemning them, that's us. Outside of Jesus, that's everybody. Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden. I'm using my fingers. Kicked out of the garden. If they stay unreconciled to God, they're done. Done. There has to be reconciliation again. Christ has to pay that penalty to bring that recognition. If that never happens, you're Nahum chapter three. You're God's enemy. And God must show his justice to deliver his wrath upon your sin to be a just God. That that can't be sidestepped. And how you treat others matters to God. You hear that, Nineveh? You hear that class? How we treat others matters to God. So this is this is why Nahum 3 is probably gonna be a great lesson. Because it ties right to us because as much as we look at Nineveh and go, oh, geez, Nineveh. No, outside of Jesus, we are Nineveh. It's like that's our story. This is our story. And we need to understand that. Well, we continue on five to seven. All right, here we go. Oh, there's that, there's that phrase from last week. Oh, scary verse. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, some of you wish this, this verse would stop right there. I was joking with, uh, not really joking. I was just kind of pleading with one of my, my coworkers who happened to be in the building last night. And I said, I'm going to have to teach this class with verse number five. And there's going to be sweet ladies in my class. I don't want to read this verse in front of them. But I have to. I am against you, declares the Lord Almighty. I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your wickedness, nakedness, excuse me, I will show them your nakedness and the kingdoms your shame. I will pelt you with filth I will treat you with contempt and make you a spectacle all who see you will flee from you and say Nineveh is in ruins who will mourn for her where can i find anyone to comfort you now this in our culture would get a hashtag me too moment right here i will lift your skirt what are you excuse me i mean are you, did he just, who said this? Come on. It has to be some bozo from Nineveh saying this. This is God? What? Oh my goodness. What's going on here? This is why preachers don't run to Nahum chapter three. It's like, what do I do with this? Oh, well, check this out. It's not just Nineveh. This didn't make your page, but I'm gonna give it to you for free. Jeremiah 13, 25 to 27. This is God speaking to his people, not Nineveh, his people. Because you have forgotten me and trusted in false gods, I will pull your skirts up over your face. That your shame may be seen, your adulteries, and he compares them to like horses out in the field, like I guess just doing things with each other, your lustful names, your shameless prostitution. I have seen your detestable acts, on the hills, in the fields. Woe to you, Jerusalem. How long will you be unclean? Jeremiah thirteen twenty-five to 27. He's going to pull Israel's skirts over his face. Wow. What do we do with this? Well, we've got... Uh, yeah, you know... Mick, you've got, you've got the exact point there. I appreciate it. It's, it's what we're going to get to. It's the idea that God exposes the shameful, like Adam and Eve became ashamed of their nudity after their sinning. That's right. And that's where we're going to go, is this is not a me too moment. This is not one of those, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to personally, you know, God's not sexually assaulting anybody here. He's not sinning. This is, the imagery is, is something we can't imagine. But it starts with God declaring, saying his terms. I'm against you. You are my enemy. Ouch. Number two, exposing the hidden things, ru- ruining selfish reputations. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like that moment in the, that, that old uh, fable, the emperor's new clothes, where, you know, they, they fool the emperor to walk around. Look at your new clothes. And he's naked, but nobody dares say anything because they don't want to get on the emperor's bad side. Look at my new outfit. Oh, it's great. Oh, it's the best fabric. And he's walking around with nothing on. Okay, there's got to be that moment where you're like, well, hold on, pal. Um, Yeah, you're naked that you're not wearing any clothes. And we got to expose this because you're never gonna you're just gonna be walking around. So yeah, exposing these hidden things. Evidently, Nineveh had this reputation that was not a good reputation, but God's exposing that some of this this hidden underbelly of their culture. God is exposing it. And it's, so powerful, like, like the imagery he uses is walking up to a prostitute who is already feeling her own shame and, and, and exposing what's going on underneath. I mean, that's quite an image here. The spectacle seen and experienced by others. I hope that the, the, this, these verses don't sit right with you. And here's why because of what I put in the blue there. The worst fears of the hiding sinner come true in Nineveh. See, Nineveh thought they could do their own thing. They were the most powerful, or at least no one could beat them. They had their city that no one could conquer. They could do whatever they sent, darn well pleased. And they could live their own life and do their own thing and treat people however the heck they wanted to treat people. And they could do these things. They could just have all this power, and they just, just, just did it. And now God's calling them on their stuff. God's going to defeat them and destroy them. But before he does so, he's convicting them and indicting them on their culture. I don't know about you, but I know me, I'm a hider. I look back at my past, especially my sinful past, my great times of hypocrisy. And I was a hider. I hid, I didn't want anything. I didn't want anybody to know what I I went through. I didn't want anyone to know what I struggled with, what I fought against, what I was tempted. I didn't, I was a hider. And a lot of us in our sins, We're hiders. Thanks, Mick. We inherited that from Adam and Eve. Exactly. Where are you at? Why are you hiding? Who told you you were naked? Yeah. It's like, yes, if you're a hider, some of us aren't hiders. We just flaunt it. Like, yeah, I'm a sinner, whatever. Boom. You know, but but the vast majority of us hide. There's something about shame and guilt that just plays with us. And the difference between shame and guilt is, is guilt is you've done something wrong. Shame is you are something wrong. And it's deeper than that. It's like, you're you're, you're, you're actually, you're bad. You're not just, you've done bad, you are bad. And so it becomes an identity. And so it becomes very, um, yeah. The worst fears of a hiding sinner come true. I'm gonna give you two verses that scare the daylights out of a hider. Here they are, numbers 32, 23. But if you fail to do this, you'll be sinning against the Lord. And you may be sure that your sin will find you out. Mic drop. Your sin will find you out. Wow. See, that's the image of God here who is revealing the, the nakedness of the prostitute that is Nineveh. Their sin is being found out. I always remember, I remember the, that that verse always just kills me because that verse is a great convicting verse. And if you're a hider like me, especially in my, my, my great sinful past. I was a hider and I'm learning and learning and learning to stop hiding and just be upfront and to communicate and let the light shine. And yes. I'm something I'm consistently learning in my life, but I look back at my, I was a hider. Oh my goodness. I hid. And it's like the revealing na- nature of that, that, that numbers 20, that, that, that numbers that numbers verse hurts. Your sin will find you out. I'll never forget there's an Erwin Lutzer biography he wrote. And he said in the biography his mother used to pray over him every day. May your sin find you out. That's a comforting prayer, Mom. Thanks. It's like dang! Wow, you go there, mom. How about John three? John 3 is also terrifying. Did I lose it? Here it is. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Uh Uh-oh. I call that cockroach theology. You go into a dark area, you shine the light, what skitters away? Cockroaches. They don't want the light because all of a sudden they got to go. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you don't want to come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed, but whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly. What has been done has been done in the sight of God. Yeah. God's revealing sin here. And he uses graphic image of a prostitute and the skirts being lifted over the face to reveal something graphically. It's like they were sinners. And, um, Yes, sin is shameful. Sin is embarrassing. Thank you, Mick. Hebrews 4.13, nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare. Yes, exactly. Literally in the case of this image in Nahum chapter 3, literally uncovered. Like skirts pulled over the head uncovered. Like, I mean, seriously, that's that graphic. And that is that is not a PG-13 image. Any of you who are like, well, the Bible's not rated R. Yes, it is. There's plenty of places in the Bible. You can go right to the cross. That's rated R. I mean, that's as bloody as it gets. Um, Yeah, the worst fears of a hiding center come true in Nineveh. Perspective, 8 to 13. Are you better than Thebes? Powerhouse City, by the way. One of the major forces of the day. And by this time in history, they had just been conquered but they were the, they remember you had Babylon up here or Assyria up here, Babylon over here. And down here, you had Egypt, big time powerhouse Thebes big time. And so in Josiah's day, it was, you know, one side versus the other side and he got in the middle and then the the, the Egyptians killed him. So it's like, okay, it was right. But Are you better than Thebes situated on the Nile with the water around her? The river was her defense. The water's her wall. Cush and Egypt were were her boundless strength. Put and Libya were among her allies. Yet she was taken captive and went into exile. Her infants were dashed to pieces at every street corner. Lots were cast for her nobles. All her great men were put in chains. You too will become drunk. You will go into hiding and seek refuge from the enemy. All your fortresses are like the fig trees with their first ripe fruit. When they are shaken, the figs fall into the mouth of the eater. Look at your troops. They're weaklings. The gates of your land are wide open to your enemies. Fire has consumed the bars of your gates. So we see who, who they were, how God responds, and now for some perspective. And he's saying this to people who were kings of perspective. Check out what Sennacherib, his messengers say in Isaiah 36. It's on the page here. And that they're surrounding Judah. They've already dealt with Israel. They took them out. But now they're coming down south to take on Judah. He says, do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says the Lord will deliver us. Have the gods of any nations ever delivered their hands? From the hands of the king of Assyria? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save their lands from me? How, can, how then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? He's giving perspective. He's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everybody else prayed to their gods too, but then they lost. So what's that say about your gods? So this, this Yahweh you prayed to, what's he gonna do? Everyone else has failed. He's got nothing on me. Yeah, God hears that stuff, doesn't he? Because now God's coming at you, Nineveh, Assyria. God's letting you know what is what, Assyria. Here it is. Your defenses are not enough. You're not strong enough. Nobody can deliver to you. You are utterly exposed. You're done. You have no physical hope at all when it comes to Almighty God. And so in the blue here, a sinner has literally no answer for his sin apart from Jesus. None. There is no answer. Acts 4, salvation is found in no one else. And you're speaking of Jesus here in the context. For there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. That's it. A sinner has literally no answer for his sin apart from Jesus. That's it. You're done. See, the bad news is you're a sinner. And your sin is... So if you look at the Ten Commandments, I I just broke one of the commandments. You know, I I, I just stole a piece of candy from the store when I was a kid. It was just a little piece of candy, but you're a thief. Well, I just told a little lie. I mean, it was a little, I mean, it didn't really mean that you're a liar. You know, uh, I didn't commit adultery. According to Jesus, you probably have. You're now an adulterer. You know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. The Ten Commandments condemns you. And if you'll permit me, it damns you. It's like, it's, it's nothing but bad news. But with perspective, it's actually really good news because it reminds you, you have a need for a savior that you cannot possibly save yourself. And a, a, you have no answer for your sin apart from Jesus. See, the only way I could find myself to be able to teach Nahum 3 is to go to that gospel allegory. It's like, this is the bad news. That you're a sinner with no hope. You are hopeless. Hopelessness is what it's called tonight on your own. That's why secular philosophy fails. That's why secular counseling eventually fails. It's humanistic. It's you are the answer. We got to find the answer within you. You are not the answer. You're not going to find, you're the problem. Your sin is the issue. Your only hope is to go to God's word in an ultimate sense. Next on the blue thing, so many places to put their trust. They have their walls, they have their water, their moats, their, 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 Egypt had all these allies and all these countries. Oh, yeah, they were everything. And so many places to put your trust, but none of them eventually work, ultimately work. Jeremiah 14 says this. This is, this is, this is good. This is good stuff here. Listen to this. Listen, Jeremiah doesn't mess around. He's known as the weeping prophet. But he brings fire, Jeremiah does. Check this. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? This is worthless, I love it. Do any of the worthless idols of the nations bring rain? Do the skies themselves send down showers? No, it is you, Lord our God. Therefore, our hope is in you. For you are the one who does all this. So many places to put your trust, Christian. I just got to follow my heart. I've just got to trust me and what my thoughts are. No, your heart is deceitful, Jeremiah says. Do not follow that heart. Listen to your heart, see what's going on. Treat it like a thermometer, not, a, not, not like a thermostat. It's like thermostat, you set the level, the thermometer just reveals what's going on. Okay, maybe reveal what's going on, but don't set your thermostat with your heart. Oh my goodness. Let your heart guide you? No, no, that's not going to end up nicely for you. So at least do Christians do this. How many pagan Christians are there? I mean, really, if the way they live their life, I'm just going to trust me. I'm going to trust somebody else. I'm going to lean upon a relationship. I'm going to lean upon something I'm holding on to. And that's going to get me through my day, get me through my COVID quarantine. It's going to get me through all this stuff. It is so tempting to, to lean upon those worthless idols. It's like, my dad used to say this, he says, son, you either trust God or you don't, and you can't fake it either way. So it's like, are you trusting in God or are you trusting in something else or someone else? And we see this in our marriages. We see this in our parenting. We see this in our work relationships. We see this in the people we deal with. I just got to get through my day. I got to get through this. What are you leaning on? Who are you leaning on? Um, I'm not saying a Christian is a pagan, but a Christian shouldn't have a pagan thought. A Christian shouldn't live a pagan way. You have God. You have Jesus. I mean, you literally have the one who paid your price, who wants to be in a relationship with you, and you're going to turn to something else. You got to be careful with that. Who they were, how God responds, and perspective. This is, close it out here, the fatal wound. 14 and 19. Draw water for the seed, strengthen your defenses, work the clay, tread the mortar, repair the brickwork. There the fire will consume you. The sword will cut you down. They will devour you like a swarm of locusts. Multiply like grasshoppers, multiply like locusts. You have increased the number of your merchants so they are more numerous than the stars in the sky. But but like locusts, they strip the land and then fly away. Your guards are like locusts. Your officials like swarms of locusts that settle on the walls on a cold day. When the sun appears, they... Excuse me, they fly away and no one knows where. King of Assyria, your shepherds slumber. Your nobles lie down to rest. Your people are scattered on the mountains with no one to gather them. Nothing can heal you. Your wound is fatal. All who hear the news about you clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Oh, this is like a Facebook thing. You're scrolling down your feed. You realize the person who seemed to have everything. All of a sudden they had a bad thing happen to them. And you wouldn't dare, you know, go ha 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 ha! Wow, look at that! You gained weight, or oh my goodness, you lost your job, boy! You were you treated me badly in high school, now look at you! You wouldn't dare. You're thinking it, but you wouldn't do that. All these people are clapping their hands. I used to remember I was in high school. I was the um, just kind of the the chubby, quiet kid. I didn't come out of my shell till college, and yeah. And we show up to the the, the reunion, our first reunion, and all the guys who were the the perfect, good-looking, handsome guys. Had all gotten balder, and they all had beer guts. I just noticed. I'm looking around the room, like, wow, there was that guy. Boy, he dated anybody he wanted to. Boy, then look at look at her. And I'm just sitting there, just walking around the room, going, dang. You know, life is just weird like that. And I was just tempted to internalize those moments. Go, wow, yeah, he's uglier. He's uglier. She's, you know, she had everything. But boy, look at her now, and all this stuff. And then think about me. And I was just, I was just wanting to do that. And and that's the image we get here. That's the image we get here. All are gonna clap their hands because you're now ruined, Nineveh. All these people you have harmed, they are going to clap their hands. Your wound is fatal. Your reputation can precede you and your reputation can follow you. And Nineveh's reputation has preceded her and it's also followed her. Hopeless and helpless. There's no hope for Nineveh. They had hope once in Jonah's day where God called them to repent and sent the unwilling prophet to do it. And it happened. They repented. But they went back to their old ways. Here they are. The fatal wound. I was thinking about this. I had had to touch base with my mom a little bit earlier to to get this out. I was saved at a very young age, very young age. I just happened to be in a situation where uh, my mom was a, was a summer missionary. A god, she would give god the gospel and then five day clubs to a bunch of kids. And, and so I was her tag along. So I heard all the stories. And so I knew all the Bible verses and evidently my mom said, I asked a lot of good questions and I was, I was a very intuitive little guy and I don't remember a lot about when I turned to Jesus. I have just a few memories. I was very, I was four going on five. I think I was just very young. I've just got a couple memories One memory was, I remember praying a prayer in a parking lot um, at uh, A.E. Staley Manufacturing in Decatur. Those of you who are bear fans know that the bears used to be called the Decatur Staleys, And if you look at the, the, when the football team ever shows up again, you'll see the little Staley the bear on the sidelines. That came from that parking lot. That area is where they kind of played their first practices around those little cooling stacks. So kind of right around the bears first got their start is where I gave my life to Jesus. And in Decatur, Illinois, I just remember praying, praying there in the car, waiting for Dad to get out of work. And I, I remember another thing. I just remember, and this came to my mind today when I read, "You have a fatal wound." I remember a story my mom told me. I had to call her to double check this story, and make sure I had it right. And you know, she, bless her heart, she this many years ago. But I re- it was a story of Achilles, and uh, you know, Greek mythology. Achilles ended up. His mom was able to dip him into some magical water or ointment or something. And everything that that ointment touched was impervious to any attack. He was, he was, he he could not be defeated. Nothing could harm him. But she had to hold him by the tip of his little, little heel to dip him in there. And so because her fingers were on that little tip of his heel, today we call it the Achilles tendon, is that wasn't covered. And so Uh, The river Styx, okay, is what it's called. Okay, so that wasn't covered. So that little area was his one fatal flaw that he could not be defeated except if it hit right there. And so, yeah, it made me think of that. And that is our fatal flaw. No, not our Achilles tendon, none of that stuff. But sin, our sin. Like Nineveh, none of us has a chance at fixing our sin. In fact, if you look at the gospel straight up, our salvation straight up, all we bring to salvation is our sin. It has to be dealt with and we can't deal with it because if we could deal with it, God couldn't give us grace because grace is never earned or deserved. So all I bring to salvation is my sin. All I bring is my Nineveh, my hypocrisy, my shame, my guilt. That's all I can do. All I can do is bring my Nineveh and just leave it upon God and say, God, take it, heal me. Forgive me. I don't deserve it. Now, I don't know exactly what I got at age four. But I had enough. And I understood that I had a fatal flaw. From the Achilles story. So they have a fatal wound. I wanted to to close here using a hospital analogy. The ICU and the morgue. See, Nahum chapter three, is a great chapter now because it leads we just received the bad news but here's the good news you have a fatal flaw you're a sinner you have no chance to help yourself or heal yourself you're done but there's good news because you're turning to the one who can the icu versus the morgue so many people look at salvation and they say oh yes it's like i'm in the icu at the hospital, you know, the place you don't exactly want to go. But if you're there, you're really up against it. You're really going through something really, really hard. But if eventually, you know, most times there's people who die in the ICU, of course, but most, most, I mean, if, if you do the right thing, you take the right medicine, a lot of people can graduate to leave the intensive care unit and be get a regular hospital room. So people look at salvation that way They see, I'm pretty done. I'm, I'm really done. But I'll do my part. God will do his part and I'll get saved. But I put to you, there's another wing of the hospital that is a better image for salvation. And it's not the ICU. Because in the ICU, the doctors and the nurses and the caregivers, they have to do their part and they got to hook you up to all these medicines and IVs and all these treatments. But then you got to fight and you got to try to get better. You've got to do your thing and you've got to take the medicine. You have to you something you have to do. They do their part, you do your part. Okay, but there's another wing in the hospital that's better for salvation. And that's about 17 floors south of the ICU. It's the basement. The sub-basement It's the morgue. Ephesians chapter two, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. Not you were on life support. Not we gave you an IV drip. Not, you know what, you're almost there, but we got a plan for you. You have a chance. No, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world, Nineveh, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, Satan, who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us who lived among them, all of us who lived among them at one time, gratifying our cravings of our flesh, following his desires and thoughts, like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. You ever ask, what does God save me from? He saved me from my sin. No, he saved me from that wrath. That very wrath, but because of his, very, his great love for us. God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in our transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. Now, I've got my mother in this Zoom class with me. My mom raised me a certain way. I am not a tattoo guy. I just, I just, I'm not judging anybody with a tat, of course. That's not my plan. I just, I just, the book of Leviticus means a little bit too much to me for me to get a tattoo. I'm just going to say that. But if I got a tattoo, I've got it picked out. It comes from Ephesians 2, the Greek there, but God. That but God changed my life. It changed yours too. For like me, you were dead in your transgression. You were in the morgue. You had no choice, no chance to ever turn to God. You were that corpse in the cold body bag in the morgue. That's it. It's it. John 11 makes his Lazarus. Uh, He was dead. It wasn't until Jesus calls it to come to life. Exactly it. It's like you're dead. You're not almost dead. You're You're done. You'll never choose God on your own, not once. That means I'm not Armenian. I'm Calvinistic. Because there's no way you're gonna choose God ever. You're dead. You're in the morgue. You're not in the ICU. You're in the morgue. You're you're never gonna. So this is like Ezekiel and his dry bones. The spirit comes in, then they start dancing around. Okay, it's like they're dead. They're nothing. They're not animated. They're just dead. That's you. That's me. That's Nineveh. And they, they paid for their sin but death. They're done. They, they, they're, they're done. But our hope is God but God. By his grace given, we have that chance. By his grace given, we are chosen for that salvation. You see, Nineveh received a very depressing text in Nahum chapter 3. Oh, Jonah would have loved it. But Jonah's been dead for 150 years by this point. But the bad news makes the good news look really good. My mom shared with me today, she's like, you know what, You, you catch your young child doing something bad. And it reminds them that, you know what, there's hope for you. You did a bad thing. But we've all done bad things. We are all sinners. We have all fallen short of God's glory. We need to turn to him. He is our answer. See, salvation is easy as ABC. A, I admit I'm a sinner. B, I believe and trust and belief in the New Testament is pistuo. It means trust as well. But it's not just a belief, it's like placing your your, your allegiance to something. I'm trusting Jesus alone for my salvation, and I'm going to commit myself to Him. I confess my sins and commit myself to Him. Yeah. Christian life math. See, the gospel is ABC. Nahum chapter 3 is the A. It's nothing but admit you are a sinner. It's like the bad news is I'm a sinner. Nobody wants to say that. Yeah, there's a few of us that go, yeah, I've done bad things. I'm not perfect. Oh, come on. you know I mean? But no, I'm a sinner. And on my own, I have, no, I have no hope. I'm in that morgue. I have no hope. I'm done. I can't ever choose God. I'll never want to choose God. It's just me. What's Christian life, man? Well, this is John 3.30. What does John the Baptist say in John 3.30. Probably the second most popular verse in John chapter 3, at least with me. I put a little, it's in the parentheses there. It's not really a math equation. I'm going to highlight it here. Do you see that? There's a greater than and less than sign there. John 3.30 says this. John the Baptist, speaking of Jesus, says he must become greater. I must become less. Or he must increase. I must decrease. So you're saying, well, I'm a Christian. I'm here. I'm in your class, Joel. What do you want? I want you to be more like Jesus and less like Nineveh and less like you, less like your sinful selfishness. Be more like Jesus. He needs to become greater. You need to become less. And it's a progressive thing. It's a doctrine of progressive sanctification. The Holy Spirit causing you to become more like Jesus and less like you. And of all the parts of salvation, that's the one part you participate with. You don't participate in the forgiveness or the justification or the none of that stuff, but you participate with the Holy Spirit in sanctification. And like you are supposed to be faithful and, and respond faithfully, and he enables you the power to do so. And we see that with uh, clothing life. We close with this, Colossians 3. Do not lie to each other. Since you're taking off your old self with his practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of the image of his Creator. Okay, so if you're like me, and this might be too much information for you, I don't know. But if you're like me, there's a part of your day where you're taking your clothes off. And there's a part of your day when you're putting clothes back on. Okay, maybe there's a shower in between there, maybe bedtime, whatever it is. You're taking clothes off and you're putting clothes on. This image right here is a natural image. Paul's readers are doing the same thing 2,000 years ago. There's part of you that comes off and a part of you that comes on. So you're taking off the old you and putting on the new you in Christ. Conforming to the image of the son. Exactly right, man. Romans 8. You're conforming, so your life is like, think every time you get dressed, I want you to think of this the rest of your life. Just do it, all right? You're getting dressed. You're putting something on. Stop thinking about, oh, it looks nice on me. Boy, look at my figure. Boy, this fits looser. Oh, my goodness, I need to lose weight or whatever. No. Remind yourself as you get dressed. I'm putting on this wonderful shirt. Today, I need to put on Jesus. I need to put on his character. My mom used to always tell me as I left the house, son, put your armor on. from Ephesians, you know, the armor of God. What was she saying? Put on God's character because there's a lot of enemies out there. There's, a, there's the enemy, and there's, it's like there's a lot of discouragement, and especially, I grew up being made fun of a lot. There's all kinds of things going on. It's like, you put on God's character, because you represent God. You're putting on Jesus today. You represent him. See, Nineveh represented themselves. They were all about themselves, and they were all about their sin, and they flaunted it, and anything in our culture that flaunts sin and asks you to celebrate sin and causes me to be wary. To celebrate a sin, what is ever celebrated about sin? Selfishness. It's like you've got to be careful with that. See, Nahum chapter 3 is dark, it's, it's, it's hard, it has some images that we don't want. But I got to tell you, the hardest image is when the, the scripture lifted up. But when that happens in your life, when your sin finds you out, it's terrifying. I live that. It's terrifying, but there's hope. When light shines into the darkness, there's hope. There's hope for forgiveness. There's hope for truth. There's hope for reconciliation. As long as you stay in the darkness, nothing ever changes. Nothing ever gets better. And all you do is wanna hide all the more. Nahum 3 is terrifying but it also leads to hope. There's a chance. Only if you submit yourself to God. Our first response, Mick says, growing up, growing out of gratitude because Jesus gave us life eternal. I'm grateful. I'm grateful the fact that my sins found me out. Nineveh wasn't. I'm sure they just became crispy critters. In Jonah's day, Nineveh responded with humility. And they survived. Here, they're done. I want to close with a reminder for something real quick. I'm going to be taking a couple of weeks off. I've been a I've been a COVID soldier here. It's uh, everyone else seems to have taken time and uh, done different things. We have gone strong even through quarantine season. We have reinvented the wheel like two or three times with how this class has had to undergo itself. And I am stepping away for two weeks and I'm just going to, uh, so for two weeks, there will not be Zoom classes. That's, that's the sad news. Okay, I just, I need to, need to I need to uh, just step away for a couple weeks and, and just rest. With some good news. We have a co-teacher, his name is Mick, and he, he does a great job.